0: welcome everybody glad you're here Uh, you can find your seats Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke the Matthew Mark Luke and John it's the third Gospel in the New Testament which is the back part of the Bible Um, and uh, we're going to be in in chapter uh, 6 and 7 and so you can you can turn there we're in the midst of our series um, and it's called to seek or to seek and to save seek and to save Um, And the Son of Man, we talked about this week after week, is the theme of the book of Luke. When you read through the book of Luke, you're going to see the term the Son of Man over and over and over and over again. And so, if you don't know what that means, you're going to be kind of lost in the book of Luke. Because you're going to be wondering every time you read it, like, what's this Son of Man stuff? Like, is this some title that, you know, I want people in my house to call me the Lord of the house? Like, you have to call me that? Is it like, Jesus make this up? Is this, like... Like, is that what we're going to do now, make up titles for ourselves? Well, no, it's actually an old title that we're going to look at this morning. But the whole mission of God was to seek and to save. That's the mission. That God said, we are, humanity is lost on this rock. <laughs> we're spinning around in the universe, lost. And we need a savior. And, and it, if we're honest, not only did, are we kind of inherited a lost DNA, But if we're honest, we even choose to get lost sometimes, right? Like we choose to do the wrong thing because I just don't want to be found. I don't want anyone to know what I'm going through or where I'm at or what I want to do. And God, in his love and his mercy, also in his justice, because he doesn't want us to hurt other people and he wants us to love him and love others, seeks us out to offer us a way out, a salvation that we can't provide for ourselves. That's the theme of the book of Luke. Um, This morning, we're going to look at this question. It's a question that's in the passage. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at different questions the last three weeks that are in the passages we looked at. Each week, there was a question. And this week's question is, are you the one? Now, this is a pretty big question for many of you in this room because you're not married, right? So when you say, are you the one? And for those of us who are married, it's a big question because oftentimes we can ask ourselves are they the one? <laughs> Did I make the right decision? Like, like, this is a question that plagues us. Are, are you the one? Right? I thought you were, but you're doing things I don't necessarily agree with or see eye to eye on, so I'm not really sure you're the one anymore. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in this part of Jesus' ministry. He's worked 30 years of his life just being a, a good man, serving his family, a perfect man. And at age 30, he decides, because God asks him to, to start his public ministry. Which, if you look back in the Old Testament, is when the Levitical priests would start being priests. He's following the Old Testament completely and perfectly. And so now he's launched off on his public ministry. And he's got all these questions that people are asking him. And he's asking people. And it's pesky. He's like seeking and like picking at things. And people are picking back at him. This is what we do in relationships. And it's no different. And so what we find ourselves in this part of the story is, are you the one? In Luke 19, it's the theme of the book. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus came to earth. As God, he could have just wiped us out and started over, would not have to come to earth. Didn't have to. Didn't have to. He's God. He can do what he wants. He could have created another. He could have gotten rid of the Milky Way galaxy and created another one. Started over. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was to reveal to humanity a special being he created and breathed life into that he cared, that he loved, and he wants us to have that same heart, that same model for things. Now, last week, our message was, uh, what is this message, was the question. What is this message, was the question being asked of Jesus. And one of the things I kind of insinuated that I need to clarify is that Jesus only did 40 miracles. That's not what happened. Okay, I said he might have done, you know, a couple a month. He did a lot of different things. This passage in John 11 said, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were not written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. In other words, Jesus did all kinds of things, and not just miracles. There are other things he did, right? We don't have necessarily all the stories of what Jesus did every day any more than I have the story of what you did yesterday and everything you did, right? Everything you thought. We have that in the Gospels. But we only have a small picture, enough to believe, to have faith, but, but there's a bigger God who's trying to do greater things and asks us to participate in. And the question we have to wrestle with is, is all this stuff that was written, is all the stuff that, that had not been written down for us, do I believe it? Do I really believe that this, this man who, who claimed things that are crazy, do, do I really believe that he is the one and only God? Because it starts there. And, the, and I'm telling you, that's what's attacked in our culture, that, that he's not the only one. There's another way. There's, there's other paths to get to God. And Jesus is going right after that in this passage. So Luke 6.1, here we go. I love this. First part says, on the Sabbath. So stop. On the Sabbath. Some of you who did not grow up in church may not know what Sabbath means. Maybe you do. The Sabbath was the day of rest. It was the day of worship. It wasn't a day to rest like take a nap and watch football. That's not what a Sabbath is. That's selfish. Okay, A Sabbath was designed to spend time with the community, with God, and sure, that's not wrong to watch a football game, but it was, it, the mentality was it, it was a time to separate ourselves to reflect on loving God and loving people. That's what it was. And they did it every week. every Saturday, they, the, the Jews, the Israelites, would celebrate the Sabbath. They had to get all their work done, they had to prepare for it, prepare, prepare for it. And on Friday evening at sundown, they were supposed to not do any more work until the next sundown on Saturday. Does that make sense? And that's what the Sabbath was. Now what had happened through history, just like we do, is that the religious leaders begin to use that day not as a day to worship and to love, but to use it as a day to control people. To use it as a way to make people feel like they couldn't measure up, that God, you have to do all these things. And so the Sabbath actually didn't become a day of rest, it was a day of burden. And you had these religious leaders going around picking at people and and being mean and pointing out things and telling people that they didn't do what they told them to do, they were gonna be in trouble. And it, and it lost its heart. Now Jesus, his model of teaching, it was also the New Testament model that Paul used, and even the apostles that we read about in Acts, is they would go to these synagogues. We looked at that last week. A synagogue was a place of worship outside the temple that when you couldn't travel to the temple every day, because Jews were required to travel to the temple three times a year, Right? to go do the festivals in the Old Testament. When you couldn't do that, they had these little hubs, these little community centers, these synagogues that they would go meet in, like this. And they would gather, and they would worship. And they would spend time together. They would read the scriptures. They would hold one another accountable. Hey, where's John? I don't know. What happened? Is he at home working? Go get, like, we need to go find out. Like, that's the, what it was, these synagogues. And so Jesus is traveling to these synagogues. He's teaching and healing. He's doing miracles, and they're throwing him out. He goes to a synagogue, and then the first synagogue he goes to, if you remember in the story, they want to throw him off a cliff. He does his first teaching, and they're like, let's drag him out of town, let's throw him on a cliff and get rid of this guy. So he's like, I got to go to a different synagogue, because <laughs> they want to kill me. They're, they're going to literally throw me off a cliff here, and it's not time for me to die yet, so I'm going to move on. It wasn't, he just disagreed and didn't like him. It was literally, they were going to kill him, and he had to go to a different one. And this is what keeps happening. He keeps getting run out, and it's not just, hey, we disagree, can we talk? It's, I'm going to kill you, we're going to, and he has to, okay, we got to flee. And so here's what's happening. He goes in, now, I don't know about you, but after the first synagogue experience, I'm not sure I'm going into another one, right? Like, modern thought would be, boy, boy, that was a bad strategy. That did not work well. I just got dragged to a cliff and almost turned off. Let's find some other community center we can go to, because This synagogue one's not working. Jesus does the complete opposite. He enters into those synagogues because he knows there are people who need to be sought out and saved who are trapped. They are trapped in a system of belief that's not true. The reason you sit here today is because there there were religious people, specifically a person, Martin Luther, who said this about the church of his day. He said, they're not teaching what's true, and so I I don't know what to do other than stand up to them, and then they wanted to kill him, so he fled for his life. And it wasn't like he was trying to find a new Protestant denomination. He wasn't. He was just trying to get the church to see that they are doing things that aren't loving to people, that aren't real, true love, that they aren't doing what God's word says. They're doing the opposite. It's exactly what Jesus is doing. It says, I love this. Oh, I shouldn't have clicked it. I got clicker happy. Sorry. And it says, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, Jesus told them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Are you the one? Are are you the son of man? So here they are. They're just walking through the fields. And the disciples look and there's some grain heads. And it was legal to do this. Okay. It's actually commanded that you were supposed to leave the gleanings. We looked at this in Deuteronomy this past summer. We've looked at it when we did the book of Leviticus. When you you walk through the grain fields, you you left the edges of the grain fields for the poor. You weren't supposed to harvest it. It was was required by the Old Testament law to love your neighbor, to love the poor. You were to leave some of the gleanings for them. Not try to get every single grain you could out of everything you can. That's complete opposite of our culture today. Our culture tries to squeeze every ounce of everything we can out of everything there is because that's what's best for the environment. Not best for people. See, our focus is wrong. Jesus said, no, leave the edges. Well, what if it rots? Then it rots. But the poor have an opportunity to have some. And so they're literally just walking, and it was okay to take a few grapes. It wasn't illegal to do this. It was expected as long as you didn't take some in your pockets and gorge yourself. And so they were just walking through and putting a little grain in and chewing on it. And, you know, I can't imagine. I don't know how hard that would be. <laughs> like, I... <laughs> I mean, it's like you're eating a popcorn kernel. Do any of you like to try to split the popcorn, you know, the popcorn kernels that are just barely, they're just split open enough, you're like, okay, I can, I can break that one open without breaking a tooth, right? Am I the only one? Like, the other ones, you're like, I'm not even going to try that. I'll break a tooth, right? Same thing here. And they're just walking through, popping a little bit, and the Pharisees are following them around looking for something they're going to do wrong. See, the Pharisees have already decided Jesus and these guys don't know what they're doing. He's not the one. This isn't the way things are supposed to be done according to how we interpret things. And so we're just going to follow them around and cause problems all the time. Ask pesky questions because we really don't want the answers. We just want everybody else to be confused. And that's all they're doing, walking around Asking questions, gossiping to confuse everyone else. They have no solutions, they have no clarity, and they don't want any clarity. And that's exa- exactly what they're doing in this passage. And then Jesus confronts them. Because they're like, hey, that's not lawful. You can't do that. It is lawful. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't do that. Nothing. And so then he brings up this story of David when he was running for his life in the Old Testament, went to the priest, the priest gave him the bread, and he fed and fed his people. Jesus is called the bread of life in the Gospel of John. They were eating Jesus, like the the symbol of David doing this, and Jesus had to be laughing when he was selling him. Remember when David got that bread that was me, and he went and he got it from the priest, the priest who's me, because I'm the ultimate priest, and and. And I provided for him and provided for his companions because I want to give to all. Like, Jesus is doing this and saying, I'm the one that brings fruit. I'm the one that created this grain. And you don't see that I created the grain. I created the bread. I created David. I created the priesthood. I created the Sabbath. I did it all. And you ignore it. That's exactly what's going on here. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, so what do you do about David? You love David. You highlight David. David was the greatest leader ever for Israel. And they really love David at this time. You want to know Why? Because the Romans are dominating them at this time and they need a new David king who will come in, slay Goliath and make Israel great again. So David is their favorite heroine of the Bible at this point in human history. They want a David to come who's bringing a sword and cutting heads off and we can take the world again. And so he looks at him and he says, so what do you do about that David you love that you want to come? Yet he broke quote unquote the law by actually eating bread that was prepared and done, he didn't just grab a grain head. It went through the process of being prepared. And sh- what do you do about that story, there Pharisees? If you're going to curse my disciples and you're going to condemn them, then condemn David and quit looking for a David to come save you. Because that David who comes saves you. Oh, he's a sinner. He's terrible. He's awful. You can't trust him. You exactly, and so he looks and he says, the the son of man is the Lord, and he is calling them out. Listen, Jesus could have just corrected their false interpretation. He could have just said, you know you're speaking falsely. Here's why. Here's Leviticus. Here's Deuteronomy. He does not He goes after their heart, and he doesn't do it because he hates them and he wants them to leave. He does it because he loves them and wants them to see how wicked they are. He's trying to penetrate their heart. And so he's, he's going with everything he can to get into their heart. And he's looking at them and he's saying, look, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's making them ask the question, who is the son of man then? Is this Jesus, the son of man, the son of man who we think will be like David, really who he says he is? And he's posing it. The son of man is the Lord. I mean, this question kind of, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath? Wait. Are you calling yourself the the Old Testament son of man? And you're saying you can change the Sabbath? You you can tell people when to rest and not rest? I mean, they get what's being implied here. Look at this next passage. This is in Daniel. Daniel 7.13. And this is one of the clearest passages on the son of man in the Old Testament. It says Daniel was a prophet. Daniel was in Babylon. He was in captivity. He was a slave. Daniel grew up and lived his life in slavery preparing his people to be free. We are called as Christians to give our lives to the slavery of this world, that we are in these bodies of death and we are slaves to the world around us, but we are free to glorify our God, to serve him in the midst of our mess, and then point everyone around us to a freedom that's coming someday. No different than this man Daniel who was a prophet in his day to the, to the nation of Babylon. No different. No different. He served Babylon faithfully. He served the kings. He was thrown in the lion's den, if you remember that story in the Old Testament, Daniel in the lion's den, because he wouldn't bow to the king and he accepted the consequences. He didn't try to make new laws. He just said, I get it. That's the law. I'll go to the lion's den. I just believe God will save me if he wants to save me. And if not, I'm not not bowing a knee. That's what Daniel says. And so here's Daniel, and this is the vision that he has. He was in the midst of seeing this vision. He said, I continued watching in the night visions. And I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was giving authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That's incredible. And Jesus is saying, I'm that son of man, which again, the Pharisees would agree with that. There's a guy coming who's going to overthrow the Romans, he's going to set up his kingdoms and we Pharisees and religious leaders, you see, we're above everyone else, so we're going to get those positions, those kingdom positions, because we're so awesome and so holy and so righteous. And your little disciples who keep picking little heads of grain, they're they're not as great as we are. See, that's what's going on in this passage. And Daniel says there is a son of man coming. So when Jesus asks this question and points to himself, kind of insinuates he's the son of man, this is offensive. Jesus is saying he's this guy in Daniel. They get what this means. And they don't like it. We'll see you in a minute. And here's what it says in Revelation about this. Son of man, because here's the deal. They only had half of the son of man part right. They didn't want the other half. Look, this is what you do. It's what I do in scripture. I love to read a passage till I get to the part I like, and then I stop, and then I tell people what I like. I don't want to keep reading. I don't want the whole story. I just want to stop at the part I want. I don't want to see the full picture of who God is and the full picture of who I am. I, I just want this much. And God's like, well, that's not the way it works. I want to give you all of it. I want to show you all of who I am in my glory. I want you to experience it. Well, but I just want this part. Well, no. You know, it's like your, your son or daughter. This week I heard on the radio that there was a young man in Britain who, he, he, he's going blind because of malnutrition because his family never made him eat anything he didn't like. He's literally going blind. He's, what, 15 or 16 years old and he's going blind. Because he's been malnutrition, They don't know if they can reverse it. Because when well, we couldn't get him to eat carrots and green beans and vegetables and other things that could be, you know, we didn't want to take a vitamin because that's bad for him. So we just let him do what he, he felt like doing. And now he's blind, going blind. See, God wants us to have the whole plate, not just ice cream, not just steak. Like, all of this is good for you. And there are choices you can make within that. It's not like you have to do exactly this thing. But that's what God's heart is. Look at Revelation. And they sang a new song. They're singing going out in heaven. Listen, most of the time when we're singing a new song and we're singing out, we're jamming in our car, it's not because we're in a bad mood. Normally when we're in a bad mood, the radio's off and we're driving down the road, right? that That's normally, or maybe death metal thrash. Anyway, I mean, but... That's When the radio's on and we're singing and smiling and waving at people and they're like, they think I'm nuts, it's awesome. Like, we're in a good mood. It's exactly what's happening here. But look at what they're in a good mood about. They're not in a good mood about a king that came and slaughtered everybody, which we read about in Daniel and the Pharisees wanted. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, the scrolls of the book of life that says where life really began, where life really is, where the real life we're looking for. Are you the one? Who's the one that's going to open the scroll? Are you the one? Where is he? That's the question that's happening in Revelation in heaven itself. And it says, the one who's worthy because you were slaughtered. You were slaughtered and you redeemed People for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. That's a fulfillment of Daniel, but the process wasn't what they thought. They said with a loud voice, The lamb who is slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. You see, they missed the part of the story of the sacrifice. They just wanted the benefits without the sacrifice. And that's what we want. I want the Sabbath. I want to sit and rest, but I, it's a lot of work to go sacrifice the lamb and like do that. So i just, you know, I'll do that next week. Versus, man, I know that I'm a sinner. And I just, I don't know why God said this lamb needs to be slaughtered, but, but he did. And so I, I want to go do that. I want to honor him. And I want to celebrate by eating together recognizing that this lamb gave its life for us and, and its food, is life for us, given by God, and so we want to celebrate that together. I don't want to miss that. See the difference? And that's exactly what's happening when Jesus is going through these synagogues. It says on another Sabbath, so here we are again, another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. I want you to picture the scene of this, Okay. And I want you to picture that right now this morning, I may just ask someone in this room that I've not told to stand up and come up front, in front of everyone and stand here. You ready? Now read the story. He says, and the scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Right? You're all watching me. He says, so that they could find a charge against him. Look, they've already decided he's not the one. They've already decided all we can do is charge him and get rid of him. I don't care what he says. I don't care if it's right or wrong. I've already made up my mind. And he says, but he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. (laughs) That is awful to do to someone, especially someone with a disability. So he got up and stood there. Like, you're in a crowd, and I'm like, hey, you, come here, right now, and once you stand in front of everyone, right, like, wait, me? Like, you realize, like, hey, I see that you're having a bad hair day. Come on up here, stand up. Let's show everybody what bad hair looks like, right here. This is bad hair. We need to pray and fix this. This is, this is rough, rough today. I mean, it's obvious that you got out of bed, and you grabbed the first T-shirt on the floor because you were running late, and your ride showed up, so let's bring him up. Isn't this bad? He needs another shirt. We read about that last week. If you've got two, this guy needs one right here, Right? This is what Jesus is doing. He brings this paralyzed man with a withered hand. And what's crazy is the paralyzed man doesn't sit there and be like, I'm not going up there. I'm not, I don't care. I mean, his wife's not elbowing him. Like, get up there. I'm not, no, no. you have to drag my body. Up. I'm not getting in front of people. I can't do He's like, uh, okay. And he gets up in front of everyone in church. See, that's what baptism is. Baptism is that public declaration that says, I'm an invalid without God. I'm paralyzed without God. If he doesn't make me new, death and resurrection, I'm done without God. And that's why it's so important to do baptism is because it's that declaration of the world to say, I have been buried and I'm back alive with Christ. This guy has to stand in front of everyone. Then Jesus said to him, I ask you, He said to them, is it lawful to heal or on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save a life or destroy it? I love this because on the Sabbath you're required to what? Walk through the fields to get to the synagogue. You're required to bring a sacrifice, an offering. You're required to give that offering. The priests have to fix the offering. They eat the offering. All this good stuff is being done on the Sabbath. Pharisees are like, oh, you can't do that. That's no, no, no. He's like, wait a minute. You do good stuff on the Sabbath all the time. The question isn't the Sabbath. The question is what is good and what is evil? And who gets to determine it? Are you the one that gets to determine what's good and evil? Am I the one that gets to determine what's good and evil? That's what Jesus is asking them. He says, you guys are just looking all the time for some evil thing that's being done. I'm telling you, I'm here to bring good. I'm here to show people what is good and what is bad. I'm here to bring life, but it looks like death. He looks, and then he says, after looking around at them all. I, I wonder how long that lasted. You got a man standing here with a withered hand, right? He, he, Jesus gives this out, and then he just stands there. And this guy's still like, okay, I'm just, what's going to happen? I don't know. And he's just looking around, looking at each eyeball. Eye-to-eye contact, very uncomfortable, Right? Making eye contact, some of you are looking away fast because you see me coming as my head spins around. Look, bird. Like, exactly. This is what he's doing because he's trying to get people to deal with who he is. And then he told them, I love this, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. (laughs) You just saw a person whose hand was withered publicly. You all watched it, witnessed it. Like, you're, he's standing up front, eye contact with everyone. This is very awkward. And you watch his hand go, and you're like, that wasn't real. Who thinks, who, he, he, how does he, he didn't heal my mom back home. I'm not going to believe in him unless he shows up at my house and heals my mama. You know, you can heal other people. How, how do I know he didn't pay that guy to be up there, right? I don't know that guy as well as How about that guy could have been faking? He knew Jesus since a kid. I bet you him and Jesus worked this out when they were like five. Look, you're gonna walk around with a withered hand, right? Like we're gonna make this deal at five years old, and then when I'm 30, I'm gonna go to the synagogue you live in, and then we're gonna like show that I'm God, and we're gonna deceive everyone. (laughs) A 25-year lie. This is what happens. When Jesus shows up, he just does what he wants to do. He can heal people when he wants to. He doesn't have to. It's according to his will. He's the one. And this is amazing. And they have no answer for him. When he says, is it lawful? And they're like, "Uh, we we can't answer that because if we say yes, they're stuck. And now he's done this. So now they only have two options. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and I've got to bow to him and surrender to what he teaches and leave all the teachings that I believe I've figured out and, and, and hear from him how I need to reinterpret what I've been taught wrongly, or we get rid of him. I have to find a way to dismiss him, dismiss his words, dismiss what he's taught, dismiss the Bible. i got to dismiss it all. And that's exactly what people do today when they're faced with that option. And that's exactly, as believers, what we're called to do. We have to give people the reality of that option. We have to sit them down and show them that. During these days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spend all night in prayer to God. I think it's interesting that when he is attacked by these Pharisees and he knows, he knows their thoughts, he knows they're plotting to kill him, his response isn't, let's rally the troops and go get them. His response isn't, I gotta go defend myself. His response is, I need to go and I need to pray. I need to seek my heavenly father in the midst of the world that I live in and in this body that I live in that's going to die. I need to go seek my father. And he spends all night. All night. All night in prayer. Most of you are going, ah, "That's impossible. <laughs> I've done it. It's not impossible. You just have to have a purpose bigger than yourself to do it. Because your flesh doesn't want to do it. And Jesus' purpose is here. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them. Now at this time, Jesus has hundreds of disciples following him. There are masses following him, people who've committed to follow him, and he spends all night in prayer to select 12 guys. One of them will betray him. He knows it. He still selects him, still gives him a chance, still says, hey, come along, knowing he's going to betray him. How would you like to be one of the other ones that didn't get selected? How do you feel when you're not picked? How dare you? You're obviously not the one because if you were the one, you'd pick me. See, see, Jesus is trying to to choose. He prayed all night. He talked to his God. And this is a test for those following him. Are you okay to be my servant if you don't get all that you want or if you think you deserve or the position you think you should have? Are you still willing to follow? Because there are going to be positions in heaven. There are going to be rewards. There are going to be things that, that are there. I mean, it is not fair, if you think about it in heaven, that the martyrs have a special place while the rest of us have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Wait a second, so they get a special place because they were taken out quick? i got to live in this mess. <laughs> yeah, they're given a special place in heaven because of what they sacrificed. They laid down their life. They wouldn't compromise. You see, that? this is such the stuff that goes on in church today. You begin to doubt because, well, he didn't pick me, he didn't let me. He didn't. Just serve. If you truly believe he is who he says he is, then you trust his decisions. These are the 12 he selected. I'm with you. He goes on and he says, he named the apostle Simon, whom he also named Peter. He gave him nicknames. I love this. Right? This is like a little gang, so to speak. Not really, but like he gives them nicknames. He's like, I know that's your real name, but I'm gonna call you Peter, which means pebble, right? I'm gonna call you a little pebble. Come here, little pebble. Like, really? That's my nickname? <laughs> How about big man on the I'm strong? Like something like nope. He looks at him and he says, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And so we know right here that Jesus selected Judas, gave him a chance to repent over and over, gave him a chance to see the glory of God, only to watch him reject. And that's because, are you ready for this? God comes to seek and save everyone who's lost, even Judas. God invites even the worst close to try to get them to see who He is because He loves them, because He cares about them. That's the beauty of this God. He goes on and He says, After coming down with them, so He comes down from the mountain, stood in a level place with a large crowd of His disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear Him and be healed of their diseases and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him, <laughs> right? This is, like, this is like a scene of like a Justin Bieber concert, man. Like everybody's trying to reach up and just grab something off of him, right? Like, oh, I mean, that's what's going on here. And it says, because power was coming out of him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, I love this. He's being like mobbed, and he looks up at his disciples, and they're like, I mean, I can imagine like, I don't know what to do with this. Like crazy stuff. He looks at his disciples and he goes, you who are poor, <laughs> not, hey, help me. I'm getting, mo- I'm in a mosh pit here. Get it. He looks up at his disciples and he goes, you who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed because you will be filled. You who are now weep, are blessed because you will laugh. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Because you believe he's the one. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's what we just read in Revelation. They were rejoicing, they were leaping, they were singing for joy because of the lamb that was slain. Take note, your reward is great in heaven for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets this is the high moment these disciples have got to be seeing this and thinking oh boy this is awesome I can't wait to get on on some of that like is he going to give me some of that power like is that I'm going to be able to do that soon like he just selected me I just got selected and all those schmoes didn't because I'm so awesome because I have so much faith because I've done it right obviously Bob over there didn't I mean I'm glad I'm happy for him that he's still following but you know I'm, I'm special Jesus turns to them in that moment in the highest moment so far of his ministry. Power is literally going out of him and he turns to them and he says let me educate you for just a minute while this is happening. (laughs) And he gives this teaching that says hey guys you have to come to a place where you have nothing else in loving God and loving people or you have nothing. You don't have any riches. You don't have any food, you, you don't have any joy, you're, you're weeping, you, you're not blessed, you're being insulted. He goes, that, that's when you should have real, true rejoicing and joy. And can I just tell you, the Christian message today hates that. You wanna know how I know this? Because I watch it all the time. When someone's sad, everybody rallies to try to get them happy, to fix them, to slide in a joke. They're like Job's friends. Job had done nothing wrong. He had not sinned. And they were patient with him for a few days, and then they're like, okay, we got to confront Job. He did something wrong, because God should have dealt with this by now. They didn't sit with him and weep with him and hurt with him and walk with him. No, no. They just had a plan to fix it, and that's it. And if you won't, then here, have this and have that. And here is Jesus looking at his disciples and he's saying, don't be like Job's friends (laughs) because Job's friends couldn't tolerate this teaching. And in the end, Job was restored and they had to make sacrifices through Job (laughs) to God. And if you read those friends and what they say, they are spot on with most of our gospel today. They teach exactly what American gospel teaches today. Today. Matter of fact, I was talking to a friend of mine. We both agree that we've even seen people use quotes from Job's friends in sermons and in messages because it fit what they were trying to teach and they were teaching falsely. Like, you know where that quote came from, right? That guy was not good. Like, he was teaching badly and you still quote it because it fits what you want to teach. He was a false teacher. It says it. The whole book's about that. Jesus looking, so let me ask you, what, what do you expect from the One? See, these disciples were expecting something from the One. And Jesus turned to them and he said, I just want to make clear what you can expect if you believe I'm the One, that I am the Son of Man, that this, this will happen. They'll be rejoicing. There'll be joy. He's not saying that it's miserable, right? Like, oh, this is just so t-. No, no, it's not. And he's not saying you can't have money. He's not saying you can't, like, that money's evil. That's not what he's saying. It's the love of money. It's, you keep pursuing what will fill you. You keep pursuing what will make you blessed. You keep trying to please people. And that's what he goes on to say. He clarifies his statement in the next passage. And this is our modern system. Think about Christianity today. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your comfort. We are in the most comfortable nation on the face of the planet ever to exist. Ever. You can't argue it. You can't. Now, it may not be comfortable for you. It may be difficult. But what's your response to that? Is it to worship? Is it to rejoice? Is it to say, God, give me the strength to keep fighting? Or is it to say, I'm done with this? See, that's what he's confronting. He's saying, you've received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way the ancestors used to treat the false prophets. See, that's what social media is. We're trying to get people to think well of us. We don't want to offend anybody. And I'm not saying you need to use your social media account to try to be offensive. Remember, Jesus says, you're persecuted because of me, not because you're a jerk. If you're persecuted because you're a jerk, you're just a jerk, you probably deserve it. Okay, I'm just being honest. But if you're being persecuted because you're trying to get people to see the love of God and to obey his commands and to see who he is and to see that the way that people are treated isn't loving and you're trying to warn them, that you're going to be persecuted for that because that's exactly how every person in the Bible was persecuted. They wouldn't take the warning. Look at this, Proverbs 27.5. Clear, Solomon, the most wise man ever to live, says, Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds from a friend or of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Well, I don't want my friends to to wound me. Sometimes you need to be wounded. Sometimes you're doing stupid stuff, and and a wound is, is helpful, it keeps you from doing something else dumb. It just does. The question is, why are they doing it? Are they doing it to control you, to manipulate you, to get you to do what they want because they're just a narcissist and they're awful people? Or are they struggling through how to love you? That's a hard determination, isn't it? That's tough, and that's what Jesus is bringing up in this teaching. He goes on. He says, but I say to you who listen. So he gives these two parallel things, blessed and cursed. And then he says, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. If anyone takes, remember, he's teaching his disciples. He's looking at his disciples. He's preparing them for the future that they're gonna have in ministry on the earth. If anyone hits you, then he says, if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give give to everyone who asks you and from the one who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. Now, this can be used very falsely. We're going to see this in a second. This can be used to excuse all kinds of sin, right? Because I need to just give permission. No, if you want to truly be their friend and you want them to be a friend of God, you have to wound them. You have to to give that sting that says, don't do this. This will destroy you. But but why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you're truly loving your enemy? Or do you just want them out of the way? You just want to get rid of them. Are are you doing it because you truly want a blessing for them? You believe God's blessings are offered to all if they'll just receive? Like, that's what this is talking about. Notice, too, that he says, you do this. So what happens when we see, and I've used this analogy before, I see someone being raped. Do I just walk up to him and be like, God loves you? Don't do that is that just is that the just god we have would god be okay with that why i didn't want to hurt him because i knew if i stepped into that situation i'd probably get in a fight with him and then if i got in a fight with him i'd probably have to like beat him up and and then call the police and they might come and shoot him so i just thought it'd be better if he just you know just did what he wanted to do and then we'd move on i tried to warn him that's not godly we are, to, we are to step in and, and for justice on behalf of others. But here's our problem. So often, we're so about justice for ourselves, and we could give a rip less about mercy for other people. Like, this is what I believe is just for me. See, that's what these disciples, I'm, I'm selected as one of the 12. This is, this is mine. He's like, no, 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 no. You let people mistreat you, but when they begin to attack the ones I love, you may have to take a stand. And that's exactly biblical to do that. It's biblical to say, I'm going to stand in the gap for what's just and right. I'm not going to let this happen. But so often, that's not what we do. We think, well, the best for them, and I'm good. Jesus is saying, look, you guys are going to have to deal with this in your heart, how to protect the church and care for people. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? I love this verse. Even sinners love those who love them. If you only love those who love you, I mean, that's like a no-brainer because you get from them. <laughs> I'm going to love you so I can get, because if I say something hard to you, you may not love me, and then I, I'm going to walk away, you're going to walk away, and I don't know what to do. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? There's, there's, that's easy. Somebody's good to you, you're like, oh, thanks, and you're good to them. But to do good to someone who's not good to you, oh, no, 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 that's, I'll get mine. I'll show you. He goes on, he says, even sinners do that. And if you lead or if you lend to those from whom you can expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do what is good and lend expecting nothing from them in return. And it begs the question, what is good? Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your father is also merciful. Look, it's merciful. When we all deserve the death penalty, we all deserve to be killed, it's merciful to only maim someone. It's merciful to only put them in prison for their life when they deserve worse. It's still merciful. See, mercy is, I'm not gonna give you what you deserve. Grace is, I'm gonna give you what you could never get i'm gonna give you i'm gonna lavish on you and grace god gives mercy but grace is our response we have to respond to the mercy we receive and then say wow i did deserve that i am so sorry thank you for your mercy and that's when god enters in and says i want to show you my grace now i want to show you who i am and it's a beautiful picture of the gospel he goes on. Verse 35 there is key too. it. It all ties back to our theology. Love your enemies, do what is good, expect nothing in return. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high. In other words, do you really believe he's the one, that he's the most high? Jesus is challenging their view of him. And then he goes on and he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. The most misused passage of scripture there is. Everyone loves to quote this. And Jesus just told them to judge what's good in the passage before this, and he's getting ready to tell them right after this to judge what is good. So how do I make a judgment call on what is good without having judgment? How do I look at someone and say, that's not good, because by saying that, I'm judging someone. I'm judging that action. That's a judgment. He clarifies his statement in the next sentence. He says, do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. In other words, it starts with a judgment, and then you start condemning people. If you're going to judge, make sure you're measuring the judgment back to yourself, he says. Give and it will be given to you a good measure. pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured out to you. For with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. He's saying, look, there is a measurement we use. It's called the word of God. That's our measuring stick. And the measure by which we use is going to be measured to us. So, hey, Pharisees, you say my disciples can't even touch a head of grain. You do it every Sabbath in the temple. You touch the bread. Are are you serious? You're not using the same measure. You're You're not making sense of this, he says. And then he goes on and he says, he also told them a parable. I love this. Whenever he was trying to bring just mess, he'd give a story. He also told them, can a blind guide, or can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Listen, Jesus judged people. (laughs) Jesus looked at people and said, You're not doing right. He called the Pharisees sons of their father, the devil. That's not a nice statement. That's a very judgmental statement to look at someone and say, Yeah, you're of the devil. Love you. You need to repent. Like, that's not, that's what he told people. He goes on and he says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eyes but don't notice the log in your own? He's like, what's your measure? You want to point out all these specks, but you don't want to go before God and say, God, I'm yours. I'll give my coat. I'll do whatever it takes. No, you want to say, well, they don't, and they don't, and they don't, and they don't, so I don't have to. He's like, quit it. You get with me. And do what I ask you to do and see if that changes people around you because that's what Jesus did. He came from heaven to earth to do what we were unwilling to do to say, I can change you to become like me, to be sons of the most high. If you'll believe I'm the one. And man, this is a shocking statement because they hated the Romans. They hated their enemies. A good tree does not produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree does not produce good fruit. That's like a duh statement, right? Duh, if a tree's dead. You can't get any fruit off of it. Okay, then he goes on. For each tree is known by its fruit. Yep, apple tree, orange tree, acorns, oak tree. Like Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes and grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good man produces good out of the good storeroom of his heart. An evil man produces evil out of the evil storeroom where his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? That's a judgment. Why do you call me Master, Master, Lord, Lord, and you won't touch what I just taught you? You you have an excuse for all of it. You keep it at a distance. You don't want to deal with the hard stuff. I'm good. I got my life in order. Why do you call me Lord, Lord then? You're, You're the Lord of your life. You got it under control. Your denomination's the Lord of you. They got it under control. Everything's, no, I'm Lord, he says. And he goes on. This is what it says in Galatians. I say then, walk by the spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's against the spirit. You ever have that war? If you have that war in you, that means God's working on you. Can Can I just make that clear? If you have a war, if you just do evil and it doesn't even bother you, that's bad. You're evil. You've been turned over. Romans says, Romans 1. But if you've got that internal turmoil in you, it means God isn't done with you yet. That's a good sign that his spirit's working on you. Don't ignore it. And then he says, those are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. It's not about trying to follow all these laws. You just ask God, do you want me to do this? And can you show me in your word what's right and wrong? And you seek out help, other people that have the Holy Spirit, this is what I'm thinking about doing, what do you think? And, and then you respond properly to that. If you don't, then you're being your own Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, and he gives a list of terrible things that we, many of them, we do. And he says, it's obvious when you're not making the right choices because this is the stuff you see. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What kind of love? It's loving sometimes to harsh love is sometimes necessary. Joy Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong, look at this. Those who know that Jesus, that He is the Son of Man, that He is the Messiah, He is Yahweh who saves, those who know that and believe that have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, we're constantly killing it. When it comes up and we feel the war, we're like, God, kill that. I don't want that in me. Help me fight. Help me get around people who will help me fight so I can go back into the world and tell people that there's a battle being waged for your soul. And this is what it looks like. And I want you to experience the fruit of God that he offers because he's the one and only. Jesus says, I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words and acts on them. He's like a man building a house who dug a deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against it. That house could not and couldn't shake it. Because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not act is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The river crashed against it and it immediately collapsed and the destruction of that house was great. Listen, the Romans built great stuff. Romans made concrete that we can't even figure out how they made today that's literally in the ocean. They made concrete in the ocean that's still there hundreds of years later. Our concrete fails after a couple hundred years. Theirs is still there. And we don't know the formula how they did it. So when he's giving this passage, they're looking around at all these great buildings that we can still see today. And he's like, yeah, that's it's still gonna, it's not enough. Because if your foundation isn't on forever with God, it's all gonna come to an end. When he had conce- concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. I love this. He just got done saying, love your enemies. And he, he purposely goes to love an enemy. I love this. A centurion slave who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. These Jewish elders probably didn't believe Jesus was the one, but they were more afraid of the centurion than they were of Jesus. So when they were ordered to go by a centurion, you didn't say no. Yes, sir. I will go, I will get this Jesus dude that I don't even think he's real, I'll get him, whatever. That may not have been the case, but it could have been the case. And so here you have this scenario where these Jewish elders are coming. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. I love this. They come and he says, he's not an enemy like everybody else. He he actually loves us and so you should do this for him. They're still using the teaching he said not to use. Like, this guy's worthy. All the other people you hear, they're not worthy. And notice, he says, who's worthy? The sixth slave is worthy? The centurion. See, they're afraid of the centurion. They don't care about this slave. Otherwise, they would have said, this slave is worthy. He's a very obedient man. He obeys us. He obeys us. He is the most great servant we've ever seen. Nope. They're concerned with the centurion. Because if they don't do this and they go back, they could be killed. <laughs> they didn't do their job. And so they're scared to death. Jesus went with them. And when it was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him. Look at this. He sends others. He's like, okay, the Jewish leaders got him here. Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Because if he was a Gentile and Jesus came under his roof, he could be unclean to go into the to the synagogue according to the terrible laws of the of. <laughs> That were, that were established by the Pharisees. And so for him, the centurion knew Jesus coming into his home would be a risk, and he didn't want Jesus to take that risk. So he looks at him and he says, this is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I love this. Now we have the heart of the centurion. He didn't send the Jews because he knew they would obey and they'd do what he said. He sent them because he didn't consider, you look, tune in, he didn't consider himself worthy of the love of Jesus. You ever been there? He couldn't love me. I'm a centurion. I've ordered men to be killed. I've led legions to be slaughtered. He shouldn't even be in my house because of who I am. I I know that. I know who you are. I believe you're the one. And don't, don't even come in my home. And he looks and he says, For I too am a man. But he said, But say the word, and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. The centurion has come to a place where he is poor. He is hungry. He has no other option for this slave. And can I just tell you, Romans didn't treat their slaves this way. Romans used slaves as fodder. They killed them. They didn't care about them. They put them in the Colosseum to kill each other. They didn't care about their slaves. The fact that he cared about his slave meant that he obeyed the Old Testament what it said about masters and slaves because no other culture except the Jewish culture at this time treated slaves properly. This centurion, he's broken. He doesn't know what else to do. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following, this would have been so offensive. He said, I tell you, Peter, James, John, Matthew, all you guys who have left everything to come follow me. I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. None of you have this kind of faith. You all are still watching to see if I'm the one. You're here for the benefits, but you haven't. This guy gets it. He goes on and he says, When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. There's a popular teaching out there that says if you believe Jesus is the one, he'll heal, he'll heal you. He'll give you everything, he'll, he'll take care of everything you could ever want because that's just what he wants to do. He might. How much faith did the slave have in this story to be healed? God doesn't seem to mention that the slave has any faith. But I thought if I I have faith, then I get, right? It's an exchange. It's a reward program. Like I swipe and, you know, 1% cash back. Like it's it's what we do, right? This man was healed because someone else loved him. Love God, love people. This centurion loved God and he thought Jesus was, he he loved, he's like he's gotta be the one and if he's not the one, there's no hope for the future of this man and my future and the future of the world we live in because nobody does what this man does and he leveraged it all, all in this moment. Soon afterwards, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son. Feel that for a moment. I was at a funeral recently where we buried the only son of a mother. The pain of that is searing. Then he says, and she was a widow, a large crowd from the city. She didn't even have a husband. This was it, this was her future. Her son is her future. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't cry. See, here's a person weeping. Remember the passage we just read? If, if you weep, he'll bring comfort. Jesus is following his teaching up by doing it. He's, he's the speck in the log. He's like, I'm not pointing out specks, I'm actually bringing the fact that this is true. I'm, I'm, I'm healing. And look at what he does. He then came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped, and he said, I was a pallbearer for this funeral well. I can't imagine being a pallbearer, somebody stopping us and saying, open that thing. You know what's in there? It's a closed casket. Open it. Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave to gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. See, they still don't believe he's the one. They just think he's a great prophet. They still can't embrace the fact he's the one and only God. And God has visited his people. They do at least acknowledge that. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Now he's got everyone's attention because here's the deal. There's all these healings and these stuff going on. But if you can bring people back from the dead, that's my ultimate problem, and that's your ultimate problem. Now people really want to see what's going on, because he can cure what no one else can cure. He can do what no one else can do. And so we got to go find out what benefits we can get from this guy. Here's what happens as we wrap up. Then John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, who was preaching repentance. He's in jail at this time because why? Because he judged Herod. He stood for what was right about marriage. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And because he stood up for what was right about marriage, Herod put him in prison and later cuts his head off. John's disciples told John about these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for someone else? John the Baptist grew up with Jesus. They were cousins. He baptized Jesus, who didn't need to be baptized, because it was just the right thing to do. Jesus was of the covenant, which means he, if anybody, shouldn't have been baptized, because he was already in the covenant, Abraham. And yet he chose to be baptized in the way John was baptizing, which is crazy to me. It's what led to my baptism. And here John's disciples are. They come to him and say, this is what we've seen. And John doesn't say yet, go and follow him. John says, wow, ask him if he's the one. See, John's still questioning and not sure. Let me ask you, where are you at? Are you still questioning? You still not sure? You still have your doubts because of your circumstances? John's in prison. I'm sure he had his doubts because he's like, so he's doing all these great things for everybody, but I'm still here in prison. He's my cousin. (laughs) He could come get me out if he wanted to. John has got to be struggling with that. And so when his disciples come to him and say, hey, this is what's going on, he says, well, then ask him straight up, are you the one or should we expect another? Are you just a prophet? Are you an Elijah? or, Or is this it? Is this it? And we'll look at Jesus' response next week. But you have a question. What's your response? What's your response when you've lived your life faithfully for God and it hasn't turned out the way you want? And you are maybe like John sitting and going, are you really the one? Because I thought it was going to work out this way. And I know what you taught and I know what you've said, but I also know the other part too. It's like, well, yeah, that's part one is the surrender of life. And then it's the new life. Listen, these are some hard passages and you can't live these passages out unless you embrace that he is the one and you surrender your life to him and obediently follow him the way he asks you to in what we just read. Not in a way that's trying to earn credits, not in a way that says, I'm gonna get above the next guy, but in a way that just says, God, I am yours. Help me to know how to do judgment right. Help me to know how to do mercy right. Help, help me to know how to do these things. Give me the power. Help me with the power of your Holy Spirit that indwells the believer to do it. We celebrate baptism all over North America. We baptized someone just a couple of weeks ago. Not here on Sunday morning, but they wanted to be baptized, so we baptized them on a Monday. The Bible doesn't say you have to baptize people on a Sunday. I don't know if you know that or not. You can baptize people when they want to be baptized. <laughs> and so we did it, because she wanted to be baptized. Because she just wanted to declare that, I'm in, I'm surrendered. And she didn't want to do it because she was trying to prove something. She just wanted to do it because, I know Jesus asked me to. Does that mean you're not going to have doubts? No, you'll still have doubts, just like John. But you come back to that question, is he really the one? And if he is, then it's worth whatever happens to me sitting in this prison. I mean, it's worth it because I know he's going to deliver me.